listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series Heroes and Underdogs, with a new weekly topic on one or more people who did great things for God. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Not too long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who had been in his career for 17 years, 17 years in his career, and he was complaining about how he hated it, complaining about how he wished he never did it, but now he was so far along in it, and he's just going on and on about how he was just completely dissatisfied as to why he was doing what he was doing. Now, that was nothing new. I had talked to this person before, and it seemed like every time I talked to them, they were depressed, they were down. They were not happy about their career. And so I made the mistake of asking him, well, why are you doing what you're doing? You know, the average person today, depending on who you talk to, makes between three to five career changes, not job changes, but career changes. And you know what his answer was? I chose this, you know, 17 years ago. I made a decision to do this. I was either going to do this other thing or I was going to do what I'm doing now and I'm purposely leaving it vague. I was gonna do this other thing or or I was gonna do what I'm doing now. And I decided to do what I'm doing now because I thought it would please my dad. That is a long time to live with a wrong decision. There are so many people who are doing the wrong thing when they could be doing the right thing. And they just continue to do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons And they wonder why they're depressed. They wonder why they're dissatisfied. They wonder why they're frustrated. And they wonder why, although they probably don't wonder why, everybody else wonders why they walk into a room and it's like a black cloud just walked into the room with them. Because it did. They just rain on everybody else's parade because they don't know what happiness is like. They can't take other people being happy. And it all goes back to making a decision that they based it on the wrong thing. Now, if you're not careful, you could be somebody who continues to perpetuate a lie in your own life. You could continue to perpetuate doing something for the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, maybe to please a parent, maybe to make money. There's so many people who are doing what they're doing only for money. Now, if you're only doing what you're doing for money, that makes you a prostitute, a professional prostitute, not for sexual purposes, but for career purposes. Why are you doing what you're doing? So many people who dream about doing something other than what they're currently doing wish and hope and pray that they had a life like somebody else, but they don't know how to get out of it. Well, the good news is I'm going to show you how to get out of it today based on God's word. The good news is that you don't have to continue this cycle of insanity where you continue to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, hoping for something to change. That's just insanity, as Albert Einstein said. The definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So you can't make a bad decision become a right decision, a good decision. It's not possible. You can't make a bad decision that's intrinsically bad become a good decision. You can make 
the best of a bad decision, right? You can make the best of a bad decision, and we have all had to do that. You might have to do that right now. You might have made a decision that wasn't the best decision, but there's no way to change it. So now you have to make the best of a bad decision, but you can't make that bad decision magically become, boy, that was a great decision. Sometimes we have to make the best of a bad decision because we cannot change it. But what I want to talk about and what you need to examine in your own life, what we're going to look at together today in God's journey of making you into the most effective hero possible. That's what God wants to do in your life. Make you, transform you into becoming the most effective hero that you can possibly be. The idea is to look at, have you made or are you in danger of making a decision that could lead you down a path that God never called you to walk? These are the things that you need to be attentive to because you and I, we do have more capability, more authority, more power to make choices than we tend to give ourselves credit for. It's very important to understand that you have the ability to make choices in your life, and those choices have ramifications. It's very important to understand what is it that God himself has called me to do. And if God hasn't called you to do it, then don't do it. Yet if God has called you to do it, then do it. Do what God has called you to do. See, a hero is somebody who does what needs to be done to rescue others. And if you haven't realized, our society is in need of being rescued wholesale. We're seeing that whether we're in New Zealand or whether we're here in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or any place else around the world, civilization needs a savior. And that savior is still Jesus Christ. It always will be Jesus Christ. Yeah. Then the issue comes down to if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you will rise to the occasion and be the hero in joining God and what he wants to do, to join God in spreading his kingdom and fulfilling the great commission for God's glory. That's where you come into play. That's where you come into play. See, my friend who I was talking to who was in his career for 17 years who admitted that he really shouldn't have been doing what he was doing and yet he's still doing it to this day and has no intention of changing what he's doing. Let me tell you something. Life is too short to do anything less than your passion. If you don't know what your passion is, then you need to make it your passion to find out what your passion is. Because one of these days, you might have the opportunity to be on your deathbed. You might not. You might die suddenly. But if you have the opportunity to be on your deathbed, you could end up doing what David Cassidy did on his deathbed when he uttered, are you ready for this? David Cassidy, teenage heartthrob, I think I love you, all these kind of songs, the Partridge family. On his deathbed, he said, so much wasted time. Those were his last words. So much wasted time. And so many of us waste so much time trying to do something that God never called us to do, trying to be something God never called us to be. Our heart's not in it. We actually don't even have an anointing to do what we're trying to do. What do you mean I don't have an anointing to do what I'm trying to do? Listen, if you're doing the wrong thing, and you know that it's the wrong thing, you know that God didn't call you to do it, you know that you're not empowered to do it, and you're doing it for the wrong reasons because you think it's going to please somebody else, you can please other people. Listen, the people that you're trying to please, they're typically not pleasable. 
Haven't you noticed that? The people that you try to please are typically not pleasable. That overbearing parent, overbearing guardian, overbearing boss, whatever the case might be. Typically, when you try to please people that are overbearing, that are unreasonable, you can't please them. But listen, you will always please God when you do what he calls you to do. He's not overbearing. He's not your dad. He's not your mom. He's not your boss breathing down your neck. You will always please God when you do what God calls you to do. So why not please him? You're going to have problems in life no matter what, whether you do things that honor God or whether you dishonor God. You might as well have the kind of problems that come from honoring God and from pleasing him and walking in your anointing. You're saying, I still don't understand what you're talking about with anointing. That's okay. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to spend our time talking about. The anointing that God gives to a hero. The heart that a hero needs in order to succeed in the mission that God has called him or her to. The fact of the matter is that God needs an army of heroes, an army of underdogs. An underdog is somebody who's going against the grain of the direction of society, the direction of culture. Haven't you noticed that the Christian, more than ever, is an underdog? We believe in absolute truth. We believe in an absolute savior, that there's no other way to get into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen from that just to make sure we're all here today? Can I get an amen? Now, come on. That, that's not all of us. I'm looking here. I'm telling you as one person, I'm giving you a witness. I'm looking at some of you are applauding and you're here and others of you aren't. So I'm going to give you another opportunity to, to wake up and say, wait a second, he's talking to me. God is talking to me about being a hero and an underdog. And I want to, I want to present, I want to show up for this occasion here and I want to live like I'm really alive. So I want to ask you this question again. I want to ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's our savior? That's more like it. That's more like it. So if you're a Christian, you're an underdog today because we might be in friendly environment right now. It's a safe environment here for Christians to gather with each other and to than to say, I believe in absolute truth, I believe in an absolute savior, that there's no other way into heaven apart from Jesus. But when you leave these doors today, when you go out there, when, you, when you're finished listening after our time together, you're gonna be involved in a world where people don't wanna hear that. And they want you to sit down, they want you to shut up. But God's mission and his calling for you as a follower of Jesus Christ has not changed. You have to have the heart and you have to have the anointing in order to be that hero and that underdog that God has called you to be. And this is one of the reasons why I love looking at the characters in the Bible, doing character studies, to look at the ways that God used people in the Old Testament and the New Testament to see what things I can develop in my own life. You should enjoy the same thing. If you want to replicate what you see somebody else doing, then study their life, model their life. And that's why character studies can be so important. And that's why studying the lives of the, the biblical characters is so important, but also studying the life of David, King David, you know, the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Studying his life, studying his calling, studying his anointing, studying his heart is so important for you and for me today to understand what is it that God's called me to do in joining him in his kingdom agenda. So turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we look at David, King David, and how, as we do a snapshot here, God called him into ministry. God called him into service. And if this is true of God calling a king, it's true in your life as a business person. It's true as a parent or as a guardian. It's true in whatever you're doing. It's certainly true if you're a Christ follower. Because to follow Jesus Christ means to follow the king. 
and to spread his kingdom. That's what it means. And so you can do yourself a great service by studying the lives of biblical characters, in particular here and today, studying the life of David and looking for things that translate into your own life. How is it that God called this individual? How is it that God would call me? How is it that God was able to use David? Well, how is it that God could use me? What are some of the things that I see in David's life that translate into my life? And if you're a parent or a guardian, what are some of the things that I see in David's life and his calling and his effectiveness for God that I can impart to my children? to my child or to my children? What are some of the lessons that I can help them understand for their lives so that they avoid the mistakes that they would otherwise make? Haven't you understood, if you're a parent, one of your primary responsibilities is to teach from your weaknesses, to teach from your weaknesses. We do a tremendous disservice to our children when we pretend that we don't have them because they see them and you recognize them even though our society... It seems bent on trying to minimize weaknesses. The greatest thing that you can do as a parent, as a guardian, is to acknowledge your weaknesses when they continually arise. Bring them to the forefront of your child or your children and say, you know what? Dad shouldn't have said that. Moms, you need to say, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, I struggle with patience. I'm impatient. Anybody struggle with patience? Three of us do. <laughs> One of the greatest things you can do for your child or your children is to teach from your weakness and to be honest about where you are and be honest about your need for Jesus Christ to come in and to help you in that weakness and in the process to help your children avoid the mistakes and the pitfalls that you had developed that had become part of your DNA so that they don't replicate those. And so when you study a character like David, when you study a biblical character and you look for the traits that they possessed that enabled them to have consistent success, I'm not talking about being a one-off, having success you know, sporadically. I'm talking about consistent success. The biblical heroes that we see, that we've been looking at, these are men and women, individuals, groups of individuals who had momentum in their lives moving them forward. And that's what you want in your life. You want momentum as a maturing Christ follower. You want momentum. And that means that you don't want to look at other people and compare yourself to other people. You want to compare yourself to yourself to be the best version of yourself, to be continuously improving who you are, CQI, continuous quality improvement, and you want to develop momentum in your life that moves forward, that with greater and greater impact and intensity, you're glorifying God. That's why there's tremendous value in looking at the life of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, look at what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being over Israel? Now, Samuel was the prophet, and Saul was the king, and Samuel was grieving over it. Samuel was grieving over Saul's condition and the idea that God had rejected Saul as king. You can read the passages before this and see what Saul did to lead up to that. And here's God's solution for this. Fill your horn with oil 
Oil in the Old Testament, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the anointing, that's what it symbolizes. The horn being a symbol of strength. Not only was it something that would act as a flask, but a horn in the Old Testament is a symbol for strength. So God's strength poured out on the individual. That's what's being presented here. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, if we look at the ancestry of Jesus, we see that he was to be born in Bethlehem. We see that Samuel is being sent now to Jesse, the father who has sons, and he lives in Bethlehem. That's why he's called the Bethlehemite. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. So this is the fulfillment of prophecy in line with 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, you see the Davidic covenant that God promises David, the one who we're going to see is about to be anointed as king, the replacement for Saul. God promises David that you're going to have a descendant who's going to be the king of kings. And that is specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're living in Old Testament times, you don't see exactly how it all comes together. We live in New Testament times. We're able to look back on hindsight and we're able to see things that Samuel didn't even fully understand, that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, nearby to Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem in the line of David. And so we're seeing God's prophetic plan unfolding here, that Jesus would be a descendant of King David. And that's why the stage is being set here for Samuel to go to Jesse, who was a Bethlehemite, to anoint him with oil. This is the groundwork being laid for the arrival of the Messiah. And when you look at the Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible. It all points to Jesus, whether you're looking forward to Jesus or we're looking back at Jesus or we're looking directly at Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And one of the things that you need to do on your way to learning more about Jesus and understanding more about him is to understand your role in glorifying him. And how God can use you, an ordinary person, just like all the people in the Bible, how God can use you to do extraordinary things. So God is sending Samuel the prophet, a representative of God, with some object lessons, with some symbols, a horn symbolizing strength filled with oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, to anoint the new king that's going to replace Saul. That's what's happening here. And Samuel said, verse 2, 1 Samuel chapter 16, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, Samuel sees the problem because he's understood that Saul up to this point is like a raving madman and it's going to get worse. He's like a, a raving lunatic. The anointing of God has left Saul. An evil spirit is going to be taunting him repeatedly. We're going to see that. And Samuel says, listen, <laughs> if Saul hears about this, I'm toast. So God says, listen, some of us might look at this passage of scripture and say, well, is God being deceptive? No, he's not being deceptive at all. Ain't none of Saul's business what God wants to do. Because Saul wasn't interested in God's business. Saul was interested in Saul's business. 
So God's not obligated to tell anybody what he wants to do. He only reveals what he wants to do to those whom he's using. And so it's not that God is being deceptive at all here. It's that there's a primary thing, which is God is sending Samuel to anoint a new king as he's raising up this new king who we're going to see is going to be David. And the only thing that he needs to tell, the only thing that Samuel needs to tell anybody is that I'm going up to provide an offering, which actually is true. God's not obligated to tell anybody at all what his business is. In fact, that's one of the primary strategies of warfare. You don't go out and tell what your opponent (laughs) needs to hear so that he or she knows what you're up to. It's, It's none of Saul's business at this point. God's not obligated. He's not a man. He's not obligated. When you are transparent about things, it doesn't mean that you need to be fully disclosing of all the things. And this is a perfect example of God telling Samuel to be honest and transparent, but he doesn't have to tell him full disclosure and tell him everything that he's going to do. The main thing is that God is sending Samuel on a mission to anoint his appointed, and that's going to be David. Verse three, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. That's the father, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded him and came to Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. That's what it means. From the house of bread came the bread of life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he is, remember he says, I'm the bread of life. He is the bread of life. So there's a, a word play there that's there as well. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Because they understood that the prophet and the king were inseparable. And Saul had been on exploits to execute God's will. What got Saul in trouble is that Saul decided not to obey and to execute God's will. And we learn, if you read back in the book of 1 Samuel, that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. This is why Saul could no longer be the hero for God. He couldn't be the underdog. Listen, if you're going to be selective in your obedience to God, you're never going to be the hero that you otherwise would be. You've got to settle the issue that you're going to be obedient no matter what. You're going to be obedient and trust God with the consequences. You might be facing a situation where you don't know, well, if I spend the money that I feel God's prompting me to spend, if I give it, I'm going to have a problem. If I speak up at the workplace the way I feel the Holy Spirit's telling me to speak up, there might be consequences for that. There might be consequences for that. But I'll tell you what the bigger consequence is if you don't obey God. If you don't obey God, there are going to be bigger consequences. There will be hell to pay. Ask Saul, who was tormented by an evil spirit. You don't obey God there's going to be hell to pay. You say, well, how do I know if God's calling me to do it? Listen, if you're reading the Bible consistently, if you are praying consistently in the morning, in the evening, you're in the Bible, the Bible's in you, the Bible's going to come out of you, God's going to reveal his will to you. The thing that God wants to do more than anything else in all of our lives is to reveal his will so you can walk in it. He's not interested in hiding himself. The Bible says he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The primary way that you seek God is by reading the word and by praying. If you're not reading the word and praying, you are in danger of partial obedience. Not just once, but perhaps multiple times. And sometimes you can make a decision of partial obedience that can have consequences for your entire life and beyond your lifetime. Ouch! Go ask Saul. 
Partial obedience is disobedience. Paul debated and he tried to massage it, tried to be political about it, would make a great politician. Well, I, I, did, I kept these animals to make a sacrifice to you. Did I ask you to keep all of the animals and make a sacrifice to me? <laughs> not really. No, not, not really. The answer is no. I didn't ask you to do that. If you're going to be a hero who has consistent momentum in your life, and that's the objective, that your life five years from now if you live that long, or 10 years, or 20 years, or a year from now, or a week from now, if you're going to be doing great things for God under God's anointing and God's power, you've got to settle this fact of being completely obedient. Because partial obedience, you might try to justify it, but there's no such thing as partial obedience if your objective is obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. So Samuel is intertwined with Saul's reputation when he was going on exploits commissioned by God to go into battle. And so they see Samuel and they're trembling, they're afraid. And Samuel's answer to them in verse five is this. He said, peaceably, I've come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, how many times have we made that mistake? Now, this is the amazing thing. <laughs> don't miss this, okay, don't miss this. Samuel is a prophet of God. God actually talks to him. He actually talks to him, like audibly, spiritually. We sometimes get the sense of how that happens where God says and God speaks to him audibly. Other times there's things that are implied, but the, the point is that God is speaking to Samuel. He's a prophet. That's the definition of a prophet. And here, the prophet to whom God speaks is in danger of getting it wrong. Surely, this is the guy. Look at how tall he is. This got to be the guy. And Samuel, how quick he is to forget. That's how they made the mistake with Saul. The Israelites asked for a king, and Saul was taller than everybody else, and here, Samuel, even though he had heard the voice of God, God had spoken to him consistently, was connected with God, he's in danger of doing the very same thing, making a mistake. If that's true for Samuel, it's true for you and for me. You can't rest on your laurels. Just because God's spoken to you in the past through his word, just because God speaks to you and you're praying and you're listening to God, you're walking with God through his word, doesn't mean that you're going to get it right every single time because you have this thing that you carry around with you called the flesh. <laughs> and it's not going away anytime until you die. You have to contend with the flesh and you need to continually put the flesh in its place and make sure that you're not just hearing from God but that you're obeying God. Because look at what happens here. Verse six, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Wow, there it is. You wanna be a hero for God? You want to be an underdog for God? You want to move forward and you want to have forward momentum in your life? You want to have actions in your life that are consistently honoring God and glorifying him and spreading his kingdom? You've got to look at your heart. And if you're in a position to put people in position, you've got to look at people's hearts. Resumes are fine, but you've got to make sure you have the resume of somebody's heart. 
because people continually look at the outward appearance, continually judge based on the kind of house somebody has, kind of car somebody has, the physical attractiveness or lack of attractiveness of somebody, the ability of somebody to articulate, to express themselves, how much money somebody has or they don't have, the color of somebody's skin, tragically, used all the time, the outward appearance we use continually as human beings living outside of Eden to do what? To judge people, to make decisions about people. But here in Scripture, one of the most fundamental, important teachings of all of Scripture is that the heart, it's 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 the heart, the heart, the heart matters to God, and it should matter to God's people. The heart matters to God, and it should matter to God's people. Look what Jesus had to say about the heart. Luke chapter 6. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about the heart in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, Jesus says this, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is central to what you're saying. It's central to what you're doing. It's central to God. It has everything to do with whether or not God can use you consistently. Now, at this point, you're saying to yourself, well, I'm doomed. And there's no way that God's going to be able to use me because there might be things that don't come out of my mouth, but they're only one decision away from coming out of my mouth. Anybody ever deal with that? There are words that crop up in your head. Come on now. There are words that crop up in your head, and you might not say them out loud, but you are reciting them in your mind. We all struggle with that issue. Remember that next time you go to a restaurant and your steak comes out cold. Remember next time you go someplace and somebody's late for an appointment. Happens all the time. There are things that we want to say, and they might not be four-letter words, but they might be negative attitudes. They might be critical attitudes. It's the overflow of the heart. And you say to yourself, well, there's no hope for me. Well, your hope is found in a person, not in perfection, humanly speaking. It's found in the perfection of Jesus Christ. Because all of us have a heart problem. All of us have a heart issue. It's a sin issue. The thing is this. Are you to throw in the towel and to say, well, I just can't help it? I have thoughts that come into my mind. I have inclinations in my heart. I just can't help it. And after all, Jesus says, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. So I can't focus on my heart at all. So I'm just going to accept Jesus as my Savior, and I'm going to sit on the sidelines and not try to save the day. I'm not going to have any kind of forward momentum in my life because God can't use somebody like me because of my heart. Listen, if that's the case, we might as well end right now and we're done because there's nobody who's hearing what I'm saying right now who has perfection. If that was possible, then we wouldn't need perfection that's found in Jesus Christ. But the heart does matter. 
And God is finding somebody with a heart after his own. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, you can see it, that God tells Samuel, he says, I'm gonna choose somebody who's after my heart. And that somebody who's on the horizon is David. David still had a sin issue. And God knew that David would be a murderer, premeditated murder, and an adulterer, premeditated adultery, even at this point when he had called Samuel to go anoint David. Even at this point when God said, I'm going to choose somebody who's after my own heart. Now, follow me on this. Follow me on this. Follow me on this. Because this is really important so that you don't sideline yourself when it comes to moving forward with God. The way you develop a good heart or a better heart. First of all, you've got to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then God will change your heart. That takes oftentimes a lifetime of transformation, and we all have setbacks. We all have the flesh that we're still dealing with. But the way I have found, and the way you will find, whether it's your mind or whether it's your heart, the way to get them to comply is to not go by your emotions. Not to allow your emotions to dictate what you're going to do. You allow what you know to be good behavior, what you know to be good character, what you know to be good language. You lead with your behavior and your conduct. And so all of us, we're slackers. We don't like giving when we don't see a direct result necessarily of our giving. We don't like being kind and loving our enemies in the flesh. If that came naturally and not supernaturally, then there would be no reason for Jesus to say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's all counterintuitive. That's contrary to the human inclination of the heart. But God's not asking you on your journey to becoming a hero and an underdog for him to operate by the human inclinations of the heart. He's asking you to operate by the superhuman, supernatural inclinations of the heart, which are God-given. And the way to develop and to cultivate a heart for God is to make choices that you know are after God's heart. When you become a sacrificial person, not in theory, someday I'm going to do this for God. Someday I'm going to give to God. Some days never happen. You do it right now. You say, I'm not waiting for tomorrow. I'm going to do it right now. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience if God tells you to do it now, that means tomorrow's too late. If God tells you to do it now, five seconds from now is too late. Now means now. And so if you want your heart to fall in line so that comes this momentum where it becomes a cyclical thing, if you allow your heart to go unchecked, you will say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, and that's going to feed that heart, which is evil. But if your heart, which already is evil, being a human being in need of salvation, and if you are saved, it's being regenerated. If you begin to make choices and decisions, say, no, I'm not going to say that. No, I'm not going to think that. No, I'm not going to slack. No, I'm going to make myself do what I know is right. I'm not going to watch that program on television. I'm not going to listen to this kind of music. I'm not going to look at this stuff on the internet. I'm not going to feed myself first and get my own needs met at the expense of my family. I'm going to put other people first. You will find an amazing thing happens. Your heart begins to fall in line. 
If you wait for your heart to be in the right place and just have a fatalistic attitude, oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, nothing I can do about it. Guess what? Nothing's going to change in your life. And you could make the mistake of thinking, well, somebody else has been blessed with a good heart, a flawless heart, a perfect heart, and I haven't. You're always going to be faced with decisions. I'm always going to be faced with decisions. Every human being is going to be faced with decisions to do what's right or to do what's wrong. If you do what's right and avoid what's wrong, you will find that your heart will begin to fall into line. And that is Christ-like. To have a heart after God is a heart that wants to do God's will. What is God's will? It's God's will that you be holy. It's God's will that you love your enemies. It's God's will that you pray for those who persecute you. It's God's will that you don't gossip. It's God's will that you don't slander. It's God's will that you become more Christ-like. And so that heart, which is central, the epicenter of the flesh, doesn't want to do those things. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, first of all, you got to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the door gets opened up for you to do what you otherwise would not do, to say what you otherwise would not say, to become what you otherwise would not become. That at the end of your life, you look entirely different than you did at the beginning of your life. So don't use the heart and the inclinations that you have as an excuse for doing what's right. Begin to do what's right and tell your heart, shut up. Obey. And you will find that your heart will change in the right direction. Try it this week. You will find that your heart will change. Don't believe this lie that I can't change my heart. Yes, you can. How in the world would God judge us in regard to the condition of our heart if we had no say in what happens in our heart? The reason why God can judge an individual's heart, the reason why God can look at the heart is because you actually have a say in what goes on in the recesses of your heart. So if you're sitting there waiting for a, for a zap, for God to just totally change you, first of all, accept Christ as your savior. That's the beginning that's essential. But second, you need to cooperate with God's transforming work, his very presence within you, by changing your behavior. Don't allow yourself to say the things you otherwise would say in your mind before they come out of your mouth. Don't allow yourself to do things you know you shouldn't do or to not do things that you know that you should do. You say, listen, there's a new sheriff in town. His name is Jesus, and he changed my heart. So heart, you might not have gotten the message about that, but mine sure did. And when I read my Bible, my Bible makes it really clear that I'm a new creature in Christ. So therefore, I don't have to listen to the flesh anymore. I get to listen to the living and true God, and I'm going to do what I know is right. And you will find that your heart will begin to fall into place. Your heart, the attitude of your heart, the inclinations of your heart, the desires of your heart will begin to change. Now, if you're struggling with your heart and your inclinations, I just gave you something that's powerful to bring about new fruit that's in keeping with honoring God in your life. So put it into practice. Go back here to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and let's look at the second part here because a hero needs to have a heart after God. Your heart has to be in it. Your heart has to be in it, not just for doing great things for God. There are so many people who want to do great things for God. Someday they want to do great things for God, but you're not doing little things for God. You're not doing little things for God. Men, take out the trash. That's a great thing for your spouse. 
pick up your dirty underwear that you don't look at any more than once you put it into the hamper. Pick it up. Don't leave your socks all over the place. For your spouse, your spouse who might be used to doing that, that sounds so sexist that I'm assuming that the wife does the laundry. Listen, I know I'm in a church. I know that many situations, that's exactly what's happening. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to your spouse is doing little things in your life. Take out the trash. Pick up the laundry. Cook a meal. Do the shopping. My wife hates doing the shopping. I can't blame her, especially if you go to Walmart. She can't believe that I volunteer from time to time, probably not as much as I need to. Hey, I'll do the shopping. I don't mind shopping. It gives me headspace time. It gives me opportunity to see people in real life and to say, oh, we need Jesus. <laughs> How true it is. So many people want to do great things for God. The way you do great things for God is you do little things for God. The way you do little things for God is by doing little things for people. If you're a church, you have a meeting space where people can actually meet and hang out with each other. If you're a husband, you love your wife by finding out her love language and nurturing her and encouraging her and realizing that if the wife ain't happy, nobody's happy. So find out what makes your spouse happy. Wife, husband, find out and then do it. You want to do great things for God? You want to have a heart for God and great things? Do little things. And then remember this, if you're going to be a hero and an underdog, look at this, verse 8. Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made Shammah pass by. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, well, there remains the youngest, not the one that you would typically think as being special, the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him. He was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, and from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David is anointed by God to be the king of Israel. And it's so important for you to understand that God has indeed anointed you. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. You need to understand that God has anointed you, and if God has anointed you, he has therefore appointed you as somebody who is called to spread his kingdom, not in your own power, but in his power. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And here's the verse I want to get to. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now, in our next time together, we're going to talk about God's anointing on your life. As a believer and the consequences for that. But not only as a believer and the consequences of God's anointing on your life in a similar way to the way he anointed David to be king. David needed to be anointed as king in order to serve God effectively as king. You needed 
and you need to be anointed by the king of kings in order to spread the king's kingdom. So you have that anointing. And then we're going to revisit this whole idea of talking about being a square peg in a round hole. You don't want to be somebody who for 17 years or more is doing something because you're trying to please somebody other than God. If you're anointed and you are as a follower of Jesus, then you want to find your particular anointing in your career, in your vocation, in your house of worship, to serve God the way he has anointed you to serve. Because otherwise, you could be like my friend, spending decades of his life trying to do something that God never called him to do. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.